0: Well, the first thing that we should do right now is show some appreciation for those who served us a wonderful breakfast this morning, don't you think? (laughs) Thank you to Ed and Karina, and I'm sure numerous others that I won't go into the long list of those. I know that uh, Larry was responsible for giving us a barbecue this morning, and lots of other people put things together for our breakfast. It was absolutely wonderful. You know, people sometimes come up and they say, what is the deal with beans for breakfast? Which it's just traditional cowboy stuff in Canada. There's no doubt about it. But then we serve ice cream as well. It's a child's dream to have ice cream for breakfast. The old Bill Cosby thing about dad is great. He gives us chocolate cake. Okay. It's a scream. They give us ice cream at church. It's a wonderful thing. So our kids are grateful to be here. And I hope you are. I hope you're blessed by the breakfast and, and all the things that we do. It's, it is a part of our culture. It's a part of our city for us to participate in this kind of thing. And I, every year I enjoy it. Um, I've got a new shirt. I, I actually have worn this a couple of times now. But years ago, they gave me a shirt and a hat when I came here. It was wonderful. I fit into the culture perfectly. And now Shane is following suit. Shane, stand up. Huh? <laughs> The world's first Malaysian cowboy. It's perfect. Very well done. Another thing that has become a tradition in our church is that on Stampede Sunday, like the last Sunday of the year, I tell the best jokes. If you're a guest here, don't think that we just do funny stuff all the time. But once a year on Stampede Sunday, I come up with the best material that the world has ever heard of when it comes to humor. Humor. Now, some people think I'm a little bit dry. They don't always get my humor. I say things. People don't think they're funny. I think they're hilarious. But when it comes to this, no one can hold back their laughter because these are such wonderful jokes and puns when it comes to cowboys. Like, for example, where do cowboys cook their meals? Somebody's going to know this. On the range. huh? <laughs> See, Bill loves it. Bill loves it. What advice do cows give? Turn the utter cheek and move on. Get up, move on. It's biblical. Why did the bow-legged cowboy get fired? Couldn't keep his calves together. Why did the cowboy's car stop? It had engine trouble. Ah, uh, Okay, politically totally incorrect. Why did the cowboy get a hot seat? Because he rode the range. I didn't come up with these on my own. Like, I got professional help. I need professional help. You were thinking it, weren't you? You were thinking it. And that one I came up with on my own. What sickness do cowboys get from riding wild horses? Good try. Bronchitis. Bronchitis? Bronchitis? Why did the cowboy ride his horse? Well, it's too heavy to carry. (laughs) Three cowboys of the world are sitting around camp talking about how tough they were, and the tails kept getting bigger and bigger. And the cowboy from Australia says, I wrestled a 200-pound crocodile, and I made it cry like a baby. The cowboy from Brazil shakes his head and says, I killed a 400-pound steer with my bare hands. The cowboy from Texas just smiled and kept stirring the campfire with his bare foot. See, the Texan, he loves it. There we go. Um, Back in the Old West, three Texas cowboys were about to be hung for cattle wrestling. The lynch mob brought the three men to a tree right at the edge of the Rio Grande. The idea was that when each man had died, they'd cut the rope, he'd drop dead into the river and drift out of sight. They put the first cowboy in the noose, but he was so sweaty and so greasy that he slipped right out of the noose, fell into the river, and swam to freedom. They tied the noose around the second cowboy's head. But he too oozed out of the rope, dropped into the river, and got away. As they dragged the third Texan to the scaffold, he resisted. Man, would y'all tighten that noose a little bit? I can't swim. (laughs) Not so bright. Okay. Cowboy Joe was telling his fellow cowboys back on the ranch about his first visit to a big city church. When I got there, they had me park my old truck in the corral, Joe began You mean the parking lot, interrupted Charlie, a more worldly fellow. Well, then I walked up the trail to the door, Joe continued. That's the sidewalk to the door, Charlie corrected him. Well, inside the door, I was met by this dude, Joe went on. That would be the usher, Charlie explained. Well, the usher led me down the chute, Joe said. You mean the aisle, Charlie said. Then he led me into a stall and told me to sit there, Joe continued. That's a pew Charlie retorted. Yeah, pew, recalled Joe. That's exactly what that pretty lady said to me when I sat down next to her. (laughs) Huh? Huh? I didn't write that one. Okay? Because I'm a cowboy. A cowboy and a heavy metal rocker, okay? A cowboy and a heavy metal rocker are on death row and are about to be executed on the same day. The day comes and they're brought to the gas chamber. The warden asks the cowboy if he has any last request, to which the cowboy replies, I sure do, warden. I might be awful grateful you'd play achy-breaky heart for me before I have to go. Sure enough, cowboy, we can play achy-breaky heart, says the warden. He turns to the heavy metal rocker and he says, what's your last request? And he said, can you kill me first? <laughs> huh? Huh? And then, is this the last one? How many do I have here? okay. An old blind cowboy wanders into an all-girl biker bar by mistake. He finds his way to a bar stool and orders a shot of Jack Daniels. After sitting there for a while, he yells to the bartender, Hey, you want to hear a blonde joke? Now, keep in mind, he's blind, okay? The bar immediately falls absolutely silent. In a very deep, husky voice, the woman next to him says, Before you tell that joke, cowboy, I think it's only fair to give you a warning since you're blind that you should know five things. The bartender is a blonde girl with a baseball bat. The bouncer is a blonde girl with a billy club. I'm six foot tall. I'm a 175-pound blonde woman with a black belt in karate. The woman sitting next to me is a blonde, and she's a professional professional weightlifter. And the lady to your right is a blonde, and she's a professional wrestler. Now, think about it. Seriously, cowboy, do you still want to tell that blonde joke? The blind cowboy looks, thinks, for, not looks, thinks for a second, shakes his head and mutters, not if I'm going to have to explain it five times. Oh, once a year, I come up with a good one. All right. Now, usually, usually the cowboy jokes don't really fit into the sermon. For those of you, it's the first time, like, usually they don't fit in at all. This year, they really do fit in in a way. They're not just an add-on. Um, and it's kind of like this. Some of you will remember, some of you have ridden as many horses as I have, that you'll remember the Dick Van Dyke show. And you'll remember Mary Tyler Moore. And that show kind of made those two famous. And there's an episode where Rob, Rob Petrie, played by Dick Van Dyke, in this episode he's taken to school, which happens a lot of times in schools, where, the, uh, where a child asks their dad to come to school and to indicate what it is that they do. Well, Rob Petrie's, Dick Van Dyke's role in the show is that he is a comedy writer. He writes for a TV show. He writes comedy. And so the kids want to know, what is comedy? And here's what Rob Petrie says as he explains what comedy is. He defines a joke as a story or a circumstance told in such a way that it has an unexpected, surprising, or perhaps absurd ending or punchline that shocks or surprises the audience in an amusing way. People laugh at a joke because they're surprised. The key was in the unexpected nature of the ending. And if you think about it, that's how somebody like Lucille Ball made her living. She would do something in a moment on The Lucy Show that was absolutely unexpected. So you would see her tramping around in a vat of grapes, for instance, acting like she's an Italian woman tromping out wine grapes. And the whole world laughs. Or you see her on a conveyor belt where she's supposed to just put the widgets in place or whatever she's supposed to do, and she can't do it. And it becomes a laughing matter. Or she starts selling Vita Vegemite vitamin, whatever that is, because it's alcoholic and she keeps drinking it during the performance of course she gets snockered and so while she's getting drunk it becomes a humorous moment well all of that i think is interesting in light of the parables of jesus because one of the things that makes jesus's parables work so often is their unexpected surprising kind of outcome for those who hear the story that's not always the case But with the story of the Good Samaritan, that is certainly the case. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 10. We're going to read through this. It's on page 735 in the Pew Bibles, if you happen to be looking at one of those. Page 735. And I'm going to read this, and there's a couple of things that I think we're going to find a bit shocking today about this parable. It starts in verse 25 of Luke 10. Luke says on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to teach to uh, test Jesus. Teacher he asked, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" "Well, what's written in the law?" he replied. "How do you read it?" And he answered, "Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself." "You have answered correctly," Jesus replied. "Do this and you will live." Now that in itself is a little bit res- surprising. You expect Jesus to say something that would call this guy to task, and instead he just says, Oh, you, you've done well. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And at that point, everything changes. Jesus may have been at some level pleased with the fellow's answers until this, but when the guy says, And who is my neighbor? Jesus now is going to teach him a lesson. And he does. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and banished his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any ex- extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go, go and do likewise, which, by the way, is just so much different than you've answered well. Go and do likewise. Well, there are at least two huge ways, I think, in which Jesus's good Samaritan story does indeed shock us. Although, to be honest, I'm not sure that today, without some help, we would easily get, like jokes, whether we would get either one of these shock's or punchlines the way that Jesus intended us to get them. So let me show you these shockers, and I'm hoping you'll agree with me that these are worth us thinking about. The first one is this. A Samaritan ends up having compassion on the man attacked and beaten by the robbers, And the fact is is that even if you've heard this story before, even if you've read this story many, many times, even if someone has explained to you what a Samaritan is in relationship to a priest and a Levite, I'm not convinced that we can really get this. But the fact is the priest is a very well-respected religious figure. Everybody would admire him. The law talks about him as one who is instructing in God's law. He's an interceder an intercessory kind of person between God and people. He not only brings the law to them, but he's the one who presents the sacrifices. In fact, the high priest every year goes into the, the uh, Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement and makes a special sacrifice that nobody can, uh, else can make except him. And so the priest has a special status within the community. And the fact is, we can't really get that and appreciate it. And the same thing is true of the Levite. You'll remember that in the law, priests and Levites don't actually make a living. How is it that priests and Levites end up living within the nation of Israel? Through the tithes. Somebody else gives. And so there is enough respect and position and role for the priest and the Levite that they actually don't even support themselves financially. The people are expected to do that because of the person that the priest and the Levite is. Well, it just means that there's a special level of status and respect for these people. And they're, of course, the ones who pass by. The Samaritans, on the other hand, were worse than dogs in the eyes of the Jews. They despised the Jews did, despised the Samaritans as traitors to Israel and traitors to God. They were the ones who had intermarried with those who were not Jews. They'd broken the law. They had become the very definition of a compromiser. If you wanted to talk badly about someone in Israel, you would simply say about them, You Samaritan. I mean, you might as well call them a profane word that I wouldn't use. Because the Samaritan was thought of that poorly by those who were Jews and thought of themselves as the pure and holy people of God. They took their special status being so special, their birthright so special, that they wouldn't tolerate for a moment that the Samaritans would take this birthright and then basically throw it into the garbage can. So when it is that a Samaritan that Jesus praises in this parable does what he does, clearly showing himself to be the one who is actually in the right and who does God's will in terms of the neighbor, it comes as an enormous shock to these people. And again, we can't really appreciate the shock that's there. Because this is Stampede Sunday, I could have said that, that uh, the first guy on the road was a cattle rancher with 10,000 cattle. And he passes by the guy who is beat up by cattle rustlers. Then John Wayne comes down the road. And then he ignores the one who's been beat up by the cattle rustlers. And then finally, a sheep herder comes down the road. And if you have ever watched an old Western movie, there's nobody more despised, nobody more beat up and battered around by cowboys than sheep herders. They were disgusting to the cowboy. But in this story, it's the sheep herder who ends up taking care of the one who is beaten up and left dead by the cattle rustlers. More to the point for today. I could have said that first, Lanny McDonald was walking down the road and saw the hockey player beat up alongside the road. And he walks by. And then, Jerome McGinley, when he's still aflame, maybe back in 2004, he walks by and he ignores the person lying in the ditch. But then, an Edmonton oiler came walking along the road and had compassion on him and helped the man. Now you're starting to get the point. But what if perhaps I said it this way? What if I said an elder... For the Calgary Church of Christ, a fine Christian leader passed by the Christian brother who'd been beat up on the other side of the road, not wanting to become unclean himself. And then a polite, as they always are, caring, peacekeeping Canadian walked by, intentionally ignoring the man because he just didn't have time. And then a member of ISIS the Islamic State came walking by and had compassion on the Christian brother. Now, I think we start to get a feel for what the Jews must have heard when they heard Jesus say that it was a Samaritan. Because that's the kind of conditions that we're talking about. And now the shocking nature of Jesus' story comes to us at least with that first point. So the neighbor is simply then defined in this case by his compassion. It has nothing to do with his race, nothing to do with his nation, nothing to do with his religious affiliation, nothing to do with who he is as a person, other than the compassion that he shows on the individual. And that's what makes him the neighbor. And then there is another part of the story. A second shock. The question is Are you a neighbor? That's the question that Jesus turns around, in fact, on the lawyer. Notice that the one who is the neighbor, because that was the question Who is my neighbor? There's a sense in which Jesus doesn't ever actually answer that question. Jesus doesn't say, well, the guy in the ditch is your neighbor and the guy down the road is your neighbor and you're supposed to love everybody. Jesus actually doesn't say that. Who is the neighbor in the story? The neighbor is the Samaritan. In this case, the neighbor is not the one who receives good from us. Instead, the neighbor is the one who dispenses the good. And Jesus actually doesn't answer the question that the lawyer raises. It's kind of like when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and Jesus, Nicodemus says, how, do, how am I born again? And Jesus doesn't really answer him. Finally, Nicodemus says, well, am I going to climb back into my mother's womb? And Jesus kind of ignores all of that and talks about something really, in one sense, completely different, about spiritual life. And here we have a man asking a question, and Jesus doesn't really answer that particular question. He turns it around on the guy and completely redefines in a very real way what it means to be neighbor. And here's the point. The moment you put a limit on whom you will love and those to whom you will show the compassion of Christ, that's when you pass by on the other side. And that's what the lawyer was trying to do. What was the point in asking the question? Well, who's my neighbor then? You almost get the impression it's, it's like he was saying, well, if I murder somebody, can I still get into heaven? Why would you ask such a question? I'm thinking either you want to murder somebody and you're hoping it's going to work out Or you're wanting to put yourself in the position of those who judge the murderer. But you're certainly not showing compassion or caring at that point about the murderer. You're asking a question that has a point, but it's not the point that Jesus wants you to see. And so the moment that you do something like that, I think you're attempting to put a limit on your love. How is it that I can sin and still get into heaven? How far can I take this? How little do I have to love? Are there those that I cannot love? That just doesn't seem to be the question that Jesus wants the man to be asking. Being a neighbor is not defined by Jesus and determined by who they are, your neighbor, but is instead determined by your decision to be their neighbor. That's how Jesus defines being neighbor. The question is not whether they are your neighbor, but whether or not you are theirs. Because Jesus has for us a different kind of agenda than asking the question, how far can I go? Who do I really have to love? Is there a way for me to somehow slide by and get by with a little bit less? Jesus doesn't want us getting by with anything less at all. And so the question for this morning is, are we neighbors? It's not a question, who is my neighbor? Jesus doesn't answer that one. The question Jesus really addresses is, am I the neighbor? Are there those that I don't treat the way that I should as a neighbor? And how is it that I can correct that and be what I should be? There are those in our lives that we don't want to forgive. There's that one who has mistreated you and who just won't apologize. There's that one about whom we say, but they aren't even sorry. There's that one who has sinned against us 70 times 7. There's that one with whom we've had a dispute that goes back decades. There's the family member you know who beyond a shadow of a doubt did you wrongly and to whom you haven't spoken in years. There's that one whom we are convinced deserves every bad thing that has ever happened to them. There is that one who needs to lie in the bed that they've made, we will say. And there is that one who is the dog, who has indeed returned to their own vomit. And it disgusts us. But we're called to be a good neighbor. And it is not defined by who they are. But it's defined by our decision to be their neighbor. The question is not whether they are your neighbor, but whether or not you are theirs. Are you? I pray you are. Let's pray. Lord, we have people in our lives that have wronged us. We have people in our lives who deserve what they've gotten. We have people in our lives, God, against whom we bear a grudge and we perceive that we're absolutely justified in doing so. And then you call us to be good, good Samaritans. And we too, like those others, are sinful people who deserve nothing. We, in our own sinful lives, have no right to stand before you and in any way uh, declare ourselves justified. And so help us, Father, as, as Samaritans, as, as sheep herders, as ISIS to be willing to do good to those others who, like us, don't deserve it. Give us new hearts that we might understand the teachings of Christ and be great neighbors. We pray through Jesus. Amen.